Welcome to Behind the Mic, exploring the media world in the 21st century. I'm James Marriott and I've been meeting some people right across the industry to see what they do, how things have changed and what they think the future has in store, as well as getting their tips if you're looking to break into media. We've got guests from the world of TV, broadcasting, news, sport and PR. My background is in print, radio and podcasting, all industries which have seen some fairly radical changes and challenges in the last decade. Today I'm going behind the mic with Stephanie Hurst, someone I feel lucky to be able to call a friend. Stephanie's journey is unique and I'm going to assume at this point that you already know a bit of it. She's currently hosting a morning show on BBC Radio Leeds, but the route there is quite a story. Well, this is not a phrase that I've used on um, on an episode so far, but I'm going to do, I'm going to say radio legend, Stephanie Hurst. <laughs> I won't say radio legend. I want to see whether or not you cringed when I said it. Legend, <laughs> more. But um, yeah, I, yeah, I can't, I could never get me, I could never be regarded as some form of radio legend. I'm just a radio geek that got lucky. Radio geek. I think that's better. I prefer radio yeah, geek. Radio just, geek's cool. I think, do you know when you get your first radio... I think that's one of the first freedoms in life. So I think the very first freedom is learning to walk Mm -hmm. because then you get around the house. Second freedom, I think, is getting your bike because you can go to end at street. You've got freedom. And then you get a bit confident. You go to the street that's the next street ahead. And then you go to like the street that's streets ahead of that. And then that's like you've gone on holiday and then you think you get lost <laughs> and you're going to get found out because your mum's already told you you can go to End It Street. Um, and then the third freedom, I think, in life is radio because you get radio and then that's your choice. You can tune that dial wherever you want. You can listen to whatever you want it to be. Whereas your mum or dad's radio, that's their radio. You can't, you can't detune that from what it's tuned to. So your radio is yours. It's in your bedroom. You can. It's your choice think it's one of the first freedoms you get in life and there's something about it it's magical that's a beautiful way of looking at it i love that oh thank you um, i'm just going to set the scene a little uh because and that was quite interesting though you're talking about going to the next street and the next street and the next street because um you and i grew up like a few streets apart mm. um a few years apart as well we kind of went to the same schools but not at the same time but um yeah when we were both on our bike kind of going to that next street and that next street and then you know making it kind of up onto wakefield road and like, oh crikey so um, yeah, we grew up pretty much on the same estate. In going to Lays Lane was like going on holiday. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is an area in Barnes. There's, there's there's a couple of councillors. Well, there's three actually post-war council estates. You've got Othersley North, Othersley South, and then New Lodge, and then you've got Wakefield Road, and then Lays Lane, which divide th- those two yeah. roads pretty much divide all three estates. And three estates were just there was rivalry against yeah, them. Yeah. But on Lays Lane, there were a few posh private houses. <laughs> and it was like, you go on there, you're just like, oh, that's out of the All I can remember is uh, Friday evening going to Scorer's <gasps> Chip Shop. Scorer's. Yeah. It used to have a green sign, didn't it? It used to illuminate. You could, you could be approaching it yeah. and you could see this green, luminous sign. I think you could see it from space. You probably <laughs> can, actually. It's, it's up there. You can still see. There it is, Scorer's Chippy in the distance. <laughs> Love it, love it. Um, so yeah, so we we um, both ended up working in radio. Now um, I don't think we've ever. I think this is the first time that we've been sat in a radio studio together. Mm, okay, I think the closest yeah. it's come is, and I've still got a recording of this somewhere. Um, Kev McGrath and I conspired to record a fake news bulletin for your thirtieth birthday. Yes, you did. Uh, I've still which, got it. 
So I want to take you back to, um, to, to, I mean, we're in Barnsley now, but I want to take you back to growing up in Barnsley. Mm. Um, what was the point? Do you remember the point where you thought this radio thing is brilliant? This is what I want to do. Was, was there, can you pinpoint an exact moment? My dad was in bands, so he'd be doing working men's clubs and stuff. And um, he also fixed TVs for a living as well. So there was there was surplus equipment around our house. There was always guitars, amplifiers and tellies and cassette decks and, and stuff. And um, I remember getting my first record player. Um, and then I got another record player and I put them together so I could go from one shaky record to another shaky record. Um, and then I got, for my seventh birthday, I got a dog called Lassie that was a cross between... Um, a Jack Russell and an Alsatian. And I've still no idea how she was conceived. I don't know whether stepladders were involved. <laughs> I've, I've genuinely no idea. But that's what the woman at Pet Shop opposite Library in Barnsley, where it used to be, told yeah. my mum. <clears throat> I also got um, a radio cassette player made by a company called Rotel that actually make high-end um, hi-fi equipment. And I can't, my, I've still got the original radio cassette but it's a bit battered. <laughs> so I was I was thinking of I could make one good one out of two. I could bring mine back to life by getting a donor version. I can't find it for there's <laughs> there's never one for sale on eBay and I keep looking just to try and bring it back to life again. And um this is it that I just started tuning around the dial and there was something about it as I mentioned at the start. There's something about the music, the DJ. And I remember in my mind thinking what does it look like inside? What's a radio station like? And it was, the room was circular and there was lots of different booths. And in each booth, there was each band that was singing their songs waiting to perform. And in the middle, there was this man that was introducing them all. That's how I still visualise radio inside my head. Um, with lots of window partitions going around. And just this man sat in probably what looks like a mastermind chair in the middle. And he would move on his chair and he'd just move around to the next one and next one. Although he had a microphone that moved with him. And um, and yeah, so that was the kind of thing that, that was in my head at the time. Uh, and I found it magical. And then the jingly bits, I liked that. What were they? They were really short and they sung the station that you were listening to. And where we grew up, um, our local station was, was Radio Hallam, which then became Hallam FM. And I remember ringing Hallam. I remember getting, I didn't have the phone number. Um, so I remember getting our yellow pages and I distinctly remember it. My mum was at work one day. I was upstairs in my mum's bedroom because that's where the upstairs phone used to be. We were posh, we had an upstairs phone. <laughs> and um, I remember looking for Radio Hallam's number and it didn't give you the phone, it gave you the reception. And the receptionist told me to ring this other number. So I rang this other number and I asked to speak to the DJ. Something tells me it's Howard Pressman. Possibly. Maybe. I don't think it was Jerry Kersey. He was another guy or Dave Kilner. I think, I definitely think it was Howard Pressman. I think at the time. And I couldn't get through to the, I couldn't speak to him. I wanted to speak to him. I wanted to ask him about radio. I, I was just, I wanted to speak to him and I tried again. And I thought, you can never get through. I got through to an operative. Whereas down the road, I could pick up Radio Air in Leeds. I mean, you can't pick Radio Air up in Car Park, but you could get it in Barnsley. <laughs> there was always this joke about Radio Air's transmitter. You could never get it in Car Park. Um, although I think they have boosted it. It's in a place called Tingley, 
which actually, I'm going off on a tangent here about radio, it was opposite Real Radio's old studios. Right. So apparently they used to do, tar- used it for target practice. <laughs> they used to call it the Tingly Twig because it was in a place <laughs> called Tingly and it was like a little twig. And um, so, so I, but I could pick Radio Air up on 96.3 or maybe 94.6 before the change. That's getting really geeky on frequencies now. See, I'm, I'm a geek. I just, I'm a geek. And um, anyway, I got straight through to the DJ. The guy that they were speaking picked the phone up. I was like, and I've no, I've no idea who it was the first time around. I just know I spoke to somebody. And I'm about, I think I'm about nine. Right. Because my dad took me then to Radio Air's open day for their birthday. And that's mid 80s. So I'm aging myself here. In fact, it's 1984. So I was nine. And that's when I first went in. And I distinctly remember there was a guy called Jerry Rayner, who I think used to be a musician. He used to do the fabulous 50s show on a Sunday night after the network chart. And you paid 10p or 15p to go for a station tour. And in that, you got a radio station pen and a bug. I still have the bug <laughs> and I still have the pen. I am not surprised. <laughs> and um, I remember queuing up in the, you know, Radio Air, in the studio corridor. Yeah. So as soon as you walk down the studio corridor, there's a smell, by the way, in that in that building, in that studio. You walk into the studio complex corridor and there's like a hot air conditioning smell. There's a weird smell. And I'll never forget it. In fact, Chris Miles is one of my best friends. We were, I think we were in Brighton. They were doing, they were doing one big weekend in Brighton or something. And I was there with Chris and Chris said to me, come and smell this. And we went into this area <laughs> He went Radio Air's Corridor. Oh, it does smell exactly like Radio Air's Corridor, doesn't it? There's something about that corridor. Anyway, I remember stood in front. I was Everyone was queuing to get into Studio One, which is where the tour was happening. They were obviously doing programmes from Studio Two, but Studio One is the big one. It's a, it's a weird studio, actually, because it's quite large for a radio studio. So you go into this big room and I'm just about to get, I'm on the queue. I'm just about to go in and this woman stops me. So I have to wait another 10 minutes. And I'm stood there looking at Studio One's door and opposite is Studio Four. And I remember just looking at these studio numbers and the lights and on air and these buttons thinking, I just, I want to work here one day. I want to work here one day. And that was it. I was addicted. Radio Hallam could go and do one. I didn't give a monkeys. I couldn't care less about the damn thing. I never listened to it again. Didn't care. It was just Radio Air. I've got my old school pencil case. It had, it's got Radio Air logos on it. All my school paraphernalia have got Radio Air logos on it. Everything has just got Radio Air on it. I'm just obsessed. And then there was one DJ called Paul Stead who worked there, who's actually um, an amazing television producer now, BAFTA winning producer. In fact, he created the Yorkshire Vet. Um, the, guy's, the guy is amazing. And without him, I wouldn't have got in. And I used to ring him up all the time. And I said, can I come in and look around? And I was about 12. I'd not told him that I'd been in before because I don't think I'd have got back in. Um, and yeah, he said, yeah, come come down one, one Sunday afternoon. Um, he said, in fact, come down next Sunday. That week was the longest wait <laughs> in my life. I remember going to Cat's Whiskers Youth Club, which is the youth club attached to my old school, and telling the DJ, Austin, that I was going into Radio Air, and he looked so unimpressed. <laughs> it was unreal. And that was Tuesday. And I'd got Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and then Sunday I could go in. It was the longest wait in the world. Got to go in and never left. I remember queuing up on the turntable um, 
which incidentally I own two of the original turntables from that building. I hope one of them that I've got is the actual turntable that I queued up Sunita and Toy Boy, put it on the turntable, put the needle on and queued it to a point. And, and I queued it up and he looked at me and I remember him saying to me, how do you know how to do that? I said, I don't know, I just know. I just knew instinctively to put a record on the turntable, put it on. In fact, I can do it now. Not with Toy Boy, but it's an old 60s song. So you stick it on the turntable, you pop it on, you get the crackles and then it'll start. And then there's some buttons on the turntable, one to forward and then one goes backwards. So... And there it is. And it's cued. And I did that instinctively because I'd seen them do it when I went in when I was nine. I just knew. And then you can press play and it starts. Brilliant. So there you go. So I just, I just instinctively knew and I think that impressed him. And I never left. I used to go in every single uh, Sunday morning and um, help him out on his Sunday breakfast show. He'd move from Sunday afternoons to Sunday breakfast. And... Um, do you know what? He, used to, he lived in Wakefield in a place called Durka and uh, near Newmola Dam. And he used to drive all the way to Barnsley in the opposite direction to pick me up at five, 10 past five in the morning and then drive me to Radio Air and then, then bring me back. I, I, I'm forever in his day. I could yeah. never thank him enough. He did that for like two or three years. And what, what age are you at at this point? I'm 12, 13. 12, 13. And he did that for me. I can't... As an adult now, I just think, gosh, I mean, I would do it. I'd do it, but I'd think, oh, God, extra 10, 15 minutes in bed when you get <laughs> up at that time in the morning. But yeah, that was it. That was the thing for me. That was the... I know that was a bit of a long long story, which included queuing a record up. But that's that's the crux of what got me in and got okay. me addicted to it. And I couldn't... It was like a drug. Do you remember the radio F phone number that you used to have? To oh, yeah, 05324 Of course you do. I don't know why I even asked that question. Of course you do. Um, so we're talking about stuff that happened kind of, you know, nine years old up to 12 mm. years old and stuff. So that's before kind of like you, you, you have those awkward few lessons at school where the careers advisor comes in and you've got to talk about what you want to do. I mean, was it ever in doubt? Was there ever an alternative? Did you have mm-hmm. like a, did you consider any other career? Yeah. Has, has that ever happened? I always fancied police force. I always liked... I liked that. I think if I'd not done radio, I'd have probably gone into the police force for some reason. I don't know why. I always fancied being a detective or something like that. Right. That was always that was always another option. Um, and maybe that's why I'm always digging around with old radio recordings and stuff. It's the detective work. It's tracking <laughs> stuff down. It's finding stuff. I know that's very different to solving crimes. Um, but yeah, there was yeah that that was the only, radio was the only thing I remember. And then I managed to get um, work experience at Radio Air. When I was, what, 14 or 15? So I get I get to work there for two weeks. And I'm like, oh, I get to go in the building every single day. I'm going to be in the studio. I'm going to do that. I think I went into the studio once. Right. And at the time, I was really disappointed because I thought, oh, I'm not getting to go into the studio. But hindsight, wonderful friend, always like, actually... That two weeks work experience taught me how the machine works because I spent two days in sales. I spent a couple of days in news, marketing, traffic, where they 
um, traffic is nothing to do with traffic and travel. It's it's how they schedule the adverts. And I saw how the business worked, especially the sales side of things. I used to see the big whiteboard with all the numbers on and targets. I never understood how that worked. But actually spending a few days in the sales department that mm-hmm. I started to understand and that paid dividends later on in the when I got older because I understood how the business worked. So that was really interesting. And actually, I'm glad I didn't get to spend time in the studio because... I worked there on a weekend. I could spend all the time I wanted at weekend, but during the week it was nice to see how the machine worked. So what what um uh, what what was your first proper job that in radio? Was it ra- what as in on the air? Yeah. Um I'd been at radio radio air I got I got the chance to be what they call a tech op, which is a technical operator. That was my first job at radio air and I used to get paid 5 pounds an hour tech op shift to do. And then I used to do a show on a Friday, which is called Chart Attack, which was the non-stop top 20. Mm-hmm. And then uh, and then in 92, um, uh, the guy who was doing the overnight show couldn't make it. And I was playing a pre-recorded program out. And um, the boss said, you're on. It's, it's um, yeah, he probably couldn't be bothered to find anybody else <laughs> to do it. So I got to do overnights and I got loads of work and... Did weekends, did cover shifts. Um, but I got to a point where at, at 17, 18, I'd been there since I was 12. And I remember asking someone for some advice. I can't remember who it was actually, but I remember them saying to me that you've been here since you were a kid, since you were being a child, pretty much. And there wasn't a particularly high turnover of staff at Radio Air. There is now in stations, but a lot, there's a lady at Radio Air called Sonja. And she does traffic. She does the adverts, makes sure the adverts get played. She's been there since 1986 and she's still there this very day and looks incredible. She's an amazing woman. I've, I've just, for context, I've literally been working in the same office as her today at Radio Air. Isn't she amazing? Yeah. <laughs> she's an energy. She's a force to be reckoned with. And uh, she's just a wow, what a woman. Yeah, so she pretty much started the year before I did. Right. Because it was 87, late 87 I started and she started in 86. I did ask for someone some some advice and they said, you've been here, you know, quite a long time. People still look upon you as a child. Leave and come back. Right. So I sent a load of demos out. Not many, actually. Um, one to Metro. Mm-hmm. And then Minster FM in York. I got a rejection letter from there. Right. A guy called Paul Carrington said, um, you know what I'm looking for? I remember looking at the letter, looking at the phone, looking at the letter, looking at the phone. And I just rang up reception at Minster and got put through to Paul Carrington. And um, I said to him, oh, I've got this letter. You say, I'm not what I'm, what you're looking for. And he said, yeah, you're just a bit too young. You're not what I'm looking for. I'm looking for someone a little bit older. I said, yeah, but I am what you're looking for. He says, no, I'm looking for someone a little bit older. I said, I am what you're looking for. And this went backwards and forwards. <laughs> and then he eventually said to me that, um, well, if you are, come and do a live demo. And I'd passed my driving test at this point. So I got in my Vauxhall Nova, drove hell for leather down A64. Uh, I couldn't beat, I couldn't go over the speed limit, to be honest, because it didn't go that fast. <laughs> um, got to Minster, got in the studio, did the demo. And um, he listened to like three or four links and he pressed stop. He said, why didn't you do that on, the, on your demo? He says, you're on on Sunday. And I got a job. <laughs> And that was that. So it was goodbye to Radio Air and then ended up getting Minster. And then I ended up getting a daytime shift. My first daytime show was at Minster. And it was a weird time, 11 till 3. And that was it then. I was kind of, right, this is it. I'm starting to gather some momentum. 
So what what um, does that then lead on to Hallam? No, via the Pulse. So I'd sent a demo into the Pulse. And I think a guy called Steve Martin, who's not the actor, Steve Martin, he gave me afternoons on the Pulse and I wasn't ready. It just wasn't very good. It was a different level. It was just, I remember getting, I remember I, if I still listen back to those tapes, I'm just not, I'm just not there. Minster was different. It was a different level. The Pulse was like, it was almost like Premier League mm-hmm. a little bit. And I just, you know, I'd gone from first division to Premier League and it just, I wasn't cutting the mustard. Did you know that at the time? Um, Probably not. Probably being a bit cocksure of myself and mm-hmm. thinking, no, I can do this, I can do this. And just, I listen back to some of my reading when I'm reading Traffic and Travel and it goes on and mm-hmm. there's just, there's stuff that's not right. It wasn't right for me. And I was, I was 20. And then um, I get the evening show on the Pulse. And then that's it. Because that's where I should have been all along. Mm-hmm. I should have been doing evenings. Um, and then that, I just, I never looked back. Because I was like, I was allowed to create. And I used to stay back. I'd be in the, I'd see the breakfast show coming in. Because I'd come off air at 10 o'clock. And I'd, I'd, I'd have spent eight hours in the production studio making stuff for the next night's show. So, um, yeah, I loved that show. If Out of all of my radio shows I've ever done, that's my favourite. I find it so interesting talking about um, evening radio because, you know, me kind of growing up and the people that I remember listening to on the radio, and I must have listened to a lot of people, but I remember listening to like, you know, Scotty McClue on Hallam mm. was an essential listen, Nick Majerison, mm. um, even Phone Boy, you know, pe- that evening slot was kind of like, people at school used to talk about it. Yeah. It was it was an appointment to listen and it got a genuinely, you know, radio stations now would give anything to have audiences, you know, that young at school talking about their evening broadcasting. It's, it's kind a- of crazy how much those broadcasters influence kind of over the people at breakfast because they got everything else to do. They couldn't just talk to you in the way that evening shows could. There was a guy called Chris Rogers who's, um, he worked on Sky for for quite a number of years. He went, he actually went on to present Newsround after Hallam. And he did, he did a show called No Limits, um, which is about 1993 on Hallam. And I loved that show. And he used to do a thing called Teenage Vibes, which was like a, a letter from a teenager that's struggling with something, mm-hmm. which was like the first kind of like on-air counselling or something like that. It was really, really good. And that show, I only think it was on for 18 months max. He was so good. And yeah, I, I learned a lot from listening to that show as well. I spoke to him recently and um, he was on my show for some reason. I think he was, he was, it was, it was an interview because where I am now at BBC Radio Leeds. And um he, uh, yeah, spoke to him afterwards about it, saying, I remember No Limits. And he was like, oh, you remember that? I said, yeah, it's an amazing show. But yeah, there's something about that evening show on late night radio. There's something about it. It's just amazing, isn't it? Um, I mean, we've, we've, so, we've barely touched on the, on the journey, haven't we? Because we've got, <laughs> we've got so much else to get through. So um, the, when, when's the return to the Pulse then? When does that, when does that come around? Um, I'd been at the Pulse and I'd, I'd, I'd been doing good things on the evening. Everything was all right. There was a buzz about the show. And I fired off a few demos and stuff. And I, I fired off a tape to Hallam. And there'd just been a change. A guy called Dave Shearer had come in, who had actually been um, at Red Rose 
over or Rock FM mm-hmm. over in Preston, working with the legendary John Myers, legendary great John Myers, and um, David. I think it, I think it was his first management job, and he wanted to kind of tear Hallam up a little bit and make it much younger. Um, and he contacted me from this demo and said, um, uh, "Yeah, can you meet me at Woolly Edge Service Station?" I was like. Yeah, all right. So I met him at Woolly Service Station and he literally threw down a contract in front of me. There you go. Drive time, Hallam. 21 grand. Garrett signed. It was a big deal because, you know, it was another big station. Hallam was a, a, we had 49% reach. So that's 49% of the population of South Yorkshire and the North Midlands listened to Hallam. But also... It was a big screw you to the bullies at school because I got bullied horrifically, like really badly. So then to be in, I'd never been on in my hometown of Barnes there. To be on Hallam was like, I've done it. And I got drive time on Hallam and the pulse was, Steve Martin was unbelievably brilliant. I said, Steve, have you got a second? And he must have seen this face on broadcasters a thousand times. He went, you're leaving, aren't you? And he didn't know where. He just, I said, um, he went, sit down. He says, where is it? I said, Hallam. He went, do it. It's the right thing. And um, and then went on Hallam. And it was amazing. First song was Happy Hour by the House Martins. And um, I'd covered for Daryl Shaw. And that, I was like, I'd never done breakfast before. And I was like, ooh, you can talk after every song. You can do this. You can create sketches. And that was a little bit of a drug. And I was like, I want to do breakfast. And there was no breakfast shows going because Dara was there. Mm-hmm. So, and breakfast came up at the Pulse. So I went back to the Pulse, but a guy, Steve Martin, who was my boss there, had left at that point. And um, he'd left and another guy had come in and he hired me, this lovely guy called Lee Cornell, who hired me. And he left soon after as well. And then another guy came to run the station and we clashed. Right. It was the only time in my career I've ever clashed with management in such a spectacular way. He just didn't understand me. Right. I didn't understand him. And I did it with a really good friend of mine, Elisa Hilton, who would worked with at the Pulse. It was called Hurston Hilton. And listening back to it now, it's it's not the greatest listen. Because I'm I think because the manager was annoying me so much, I would do things that would rile him. (laughs) So on the air, you can hear me being slightly petulant occasionally. And it's not good. It's not cool. I don't advise it. But I lasted 10 months and left because my friends, JK and Joel, um, were at Joel Ross and JK, um, Jason King, who Jason now does Heart National. And, um, and Joel Ross, um, they both went to Radio 1 eventually. And Joel says to me, we're leaving to go to Key 103 in Manchester. Um, they're looking for a breakfast show at Viking. Do you want me to put your word? And I went, yes. Get me out of the pools as quick as possible. It had changed. Although the MD was from Barnsley and the MD got me out of my contract. Right. Steve South, thank you very much. <laughs> South, he was amazing. And um, so, yeah, so um, then went to Viking and did the breakfast show. And that's where things really, really started to step up. Do I remember that? I, it was was it Hurst's Morning Glory? Hurst's Morning Glory. Yeah. I remember it. I remember it. I remember. I think I was working at the Barnsley Chronicle. I think I remember writing the story about you going to Viking to uh, to do the breakfast show there. 
gosh. Yeah, they came and did a photo shoot in this very room we're sat in now, actually. <laughs> I do remember that, yeah. And what was, because that this kind of kicks off then kind of like a different era for, for you radio-wise, because yeah. this is ultimately what, what leads on to, to, to Galaxy and to, to Capital. Viking, obviously, is a massive station. It's it's kind of a um, quite a unique area as well, isn't it? Kind of Hull and, and East Yorkshire and mm. around there. So so what was what was it like? Viking was just it was. But I always wanted to work on Viking because the phone number was great. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned Radio Air's number. Viking was oh one four eight two double two six two double two. I always just I used to love that phone number. It's a great <laughs> phone number. And um, it sounds weird saying that people probably just don't understand it. But as a DJ, when you're talking over a song and you're giving the phone number out. And a phone number's really easy and rolls off the tongue. Oh one four eight two double two six two double two. Just, it just yeah, it just felt great. Are there any radio station numbers that you can't remember? Gosh, Galaxy's changed so frequently. I can't remember <laughs> it. Oh three four five something eight double two double oh. That was the text number eight double two double oh eight double two double. Oh yeah, <laughs> and um, yeah. So I get to go to Viking. East Yorkshire, especially Hull as well and surrounding areas, is very much like where we're from, Barnsley, mm. working class. My auntie lived in Brough, so I'd been to Hull quite a, new, quite a few times and I knew the area a little bit. But just the love that people have got in East Yorkshire is just incredible. And then the, the boss was a guy called Stuart Baldwin, um, who's just an incredible human being and gone on to huge success in the world of self-help and all sorts of stuff. And um, he really pushed me. He So I'd gone from one manager at the Pulse who didn't understand me to one just that, that got me and understood me and understood how I ticked. And he'd edit me all the time. Don't do this, do that. And he was the same age as me, but got it. He understood it. And we just, it, it went crazy. It was, we were number one, number one overnight. Or held where JK and Joel were. Because that for me, that was, yeah. I've got to hold those figures. And just the support. Um, and marketing that we got as well, because that's a huge part of it. You've got people have got to know you're there. And the head of marketing was Joe Swinson, who's now leader of the Lib Dems. So, um, wow. and and Joe, I credit with making the show a success as well, because she worked so hard in making this show number one and getting it out there. We used to do Hersey's Morning Glory pub crawls. Yeah. We just, it was, it dominated. It was huge. We won a Sony Award for it. We did the longest breakfast show. I was on air 100 hours. So from 6am Monday morning to 10am Friday morning, the low point was sitting in a Santa's grotto <laughs> in a shopping centre in Scunthorpe on a Wednesday afternoon, wow. uh, broadcasting live. I was on air for 100 hours, nonstop. Wow. Incredible. It's just brilliant. That the Like HR wouldn't let you even do that now? No, you just, just not get through. You just wouldn't be allowed to do it. But... We knew that we were raising money for for basically cash for kids. We raised like 50 grand, which doesn't sound a lot of money now, which what you can raise with social media. But back then that you just got a transmitter and text number, it was actually a lot of money. Um, And then there was obviously this certain buzz around the show. And then I got a call um, one night from a guy that sounded Australian. He was Kiwi, but on an answer machine, he sounded Australian. And it was a guy called Andrew Jeffries, who is an incredibly powerful person at clear at iHeartRadio mm-hmm. in America. But he was running Galaxy at the time and he'd heard the buzz about Hersey's Morning Glory. And I think he was he was speaking to a lot of people because I think the breakfast show at Galaxy, 
it'd been the same for a number of years. Anthony and Jojo had done really good things, but I think he wanted to shake it up a little bit now. And um, and he offered me breakfast on, on Galaxy. So to be on Galaxy, which wasn't doing particularly well, it had done it, it had done okay, but Hallam was still dominating. The Pulse was still dominating. Viking was still number one. Galaxy was a dance and R&B station. It had become slightly more dance-orientated mainstream, but it was still a little bit specialist in places. And I think he wanted to make it even more mainstream. Um, so he offered me the job. I was still under contract to, at Viking and it wasn't the smoothest of transitions. It was very messy to leave Viking to go to Galaxy. Right. Anyway, eventually I got onto the air there and it was it was brilliant and we never looked back. And I think within our first survey, I've never seen this happen. I know it's happened, in, for those that know a lot about radio, in, in Australia, Kyle and Jackie O were a huge, huge breakfast show. I think that, and they went from one station to another and literally took the audience with them. Mm-hmm. And this happened at Viking. Yeah. We, Galaxy went from like seventh in the marketplace to number one overnight. We took over. And then at Hallam, we became number one in quite a lot of demographics. It was only once or twice that I, I bet big, big John in all demographics, but John held on to the older end. Um, Radio Air's Pulse's audience, we just, we dominated and it was huge and it lived for almost 12 years. What, uh, so, so back then, when, when you get that call about um, Galaxy, because I remember we're kind of into a different era of radio now because there's new stations cropping up mm. that there weren't before. Um, so you've got, yeah, yeah, and you've got real radio that, mm. that kind of comes from nowhere. You've got, um, yeah, you've got Galaxy. Or was it, I think it was Kiss, wasn't it, when it first started and very quickly rebranded as, as Galaxy. Um, but kind of starting from a point whereby it didn't have the heritage that, that stations like Hallam and Viking had. Mm. So what was the motivation? What, what what made you, what did you see at Galaxy where you just thought, yeah, let's do this? The size, the, it was the biggest commercial radio station outside London because Yorkshire's the biggest county. Mm-hmm. It was regional. It wasn't local. It was regional. This for me was the next step to get into possible national at some point, mm-hmm. which happened very quickly whilst I was still able to do Galaxy and do national, which will come onto the chart, I'm guessing. Um but yeah, it, it it was just, and you know, when you sat in that studio, it felt, it felt different. It felt massive. And I think the more momentum, I mean, me and Dixie, who does Heart Drive now, me and Dixie have said, you you could fart and the text machine would light up. You could just go text us now, 8222 And literally, I think on our show, you could do a good couple of thousand texts a show. It was ridiculous. The content. And the wonderful thing was that you were the felicitator of an idea or something. And then the audience would just pick it up and take it take it and become their own. So you'd come up with an idea. Or even the audience would come up with an idea. We'd mention it and then the rest of the audience would mould that idea. Hey, Yorkshire was a good example of that, which was a song that we did that went viral and massive. And that was actually, that was the listener's idea. Because we'd done a spoof for, well, no, I'd found the instrumental version of Adele's Someone Like You and just started singing, Nimind, I'll find someone like thee over it, <laughs> as in a Yorkshire thing. And then someone says, oh, you should do um, Yorkshire versions of, of songs, like Hey Portia, you should Hey Yorkshire, which was the Nelly song, Hey Portia. And we, oh, yeah, that's a good idea. Promptly just forgot about it. And then someone reminded us and texted in saying, have you done that Hey Yorkshire song? 
oh yeah, we'll do that. So we wrote it and it just became the the most biggest viral thing we've ever done. It's still on YouTube now. It's had like a million hits or something. That's crazy, isn't it? Um, so yeah, so the the audience was brilliant because they would run with something. And we also, um, I've always been a fan of self-deprecation in the fact that never bigging yourself up. I think it's from where we're from, isn't it? Yeah. You know, salt of the earth, spades are spared. Yeah, yeah. And I just, I never wanted to make us sound like we we thought we were great because we weren't. We were always just a little bit shonky and a, a, just a bit broken. And it was just like that. And I think because we only said we got nine listeners and we, we just, we never took ourselves too seriously. The audience connected with that. I hate shows that go, we're amazing. And we've got so many listeners. It just makes my skin crawl. Or you'll hear radio stations run these little adverts saying, we've got so many listeners. Thanks for listening. I don't know. It's just a bit all self-congratulatory. So I didn't want to do that. And um, and then you got me, you got Jojo. Now, she, Jojo had done the show. She's been on that station 22 years because she was on from launch date. And um, and she's only 25. <laughs> and, uh, and then Danny, who I'd known since I was like 15 or 16, something like that. Uh, and I'd taken him to Viking with me. He'd done lots of stand-up comedy and it was brilliant. And then he came to to galaxy with me so you got us three and mine and danny's relationship started to wane a little bit after about three or four years and we became spiky with each other so what you heard on the air actually was was genuine right and i think because it was genuine listeners they bought into that Mm -hmm. so i feel very blessed and lucky to have done that show um, somewhere in among that, um, you, you kind of mentioned it earlier about doing the commercial radio chart on Sunday mm. afternoon. Originally, um, Radio One's chart show had dominated for years. Commercial radio, um, together, all of the stations back in the 80s in 1984 decided we'd like, they'd like to do a chart. And they did. And it was sponsored by Nescafe. David Jensen presented it on a Sunday. Kid Jensen did it till about 92, 93. And then Foxy took over. Mm -hmm. And then after Foxy left, I took over. And I used to be the one that sat on a Sunday afternoon at Radio Air, opening the fader for the network chart. And then 10 years later, I'm actually in London, in Capital Radio in London, in Leicester Square, doing the chart to six million um and it was i look back then monday to friday well no i was doing five live breakfast shows then hersty's overdose on a weekend which was pre-recorded but you had to do that you then got um hit 42k on a sunday so you've got seven shows a week there um then you've got Hit 40 UK updates. We were doing podcasts because podcasts had just started happening mm-hmm. back in oh, five or six. Um, I was doing an, an overseas show as well. I was doing like eight, nine shows a week. I was doing my own editing. I was living in London. So Joel, JK and Joel, Joel, we had a flat in Belsize Park in Hampstead. Moyles lived just around the corner. We used to drink in the have a stock. Arms. Um, I used to stay down, do the interviews with some pop stars if we couldn't do them during on on a Sunday. Um, go to the pub until nine or half eight, something like that. Not of many, maybe one or two. Socialize a little bit. Go to bed at the flat. Get up at three o'clock. 
drive back to Leeds, do the show at six. Wow. And it's, it was only coming off it for political reasons um, that I realised how tired and broken I was. And um, the reason why it ended was the fact that EMAP, who then owned, owned Hallam, Air and Viking in the marketplace, which we dominated on in Galaxy, was starting to take the chart again because they'd, they'd stopped taking the chart and they had the Smash It's chart because they got the Smash It's brand. And Mark Goodyear was doing that. And then for whatever reason, they didn't want to do that anymore. And they were moving away from the Smash It's brand. So they took the national chart again and they didn't want me on their radio stations that I was a major rival for mm. and killing them at breakfast. They didn't want me on a Sunday. So I had to make a decision, chart or, or Galaxy. And it was a no-brainer, mm. Galaxy, because that's where the creative side. Doing the chart was brilliant. It was amazing. But you're, you're a jock and you're playing 40 songs, yeah. whereas Galaxy was more creative. So just to do that, it goes Jensen, Fox and me. I still can't even comprehend it's that. pretty amazing. I can't comprehend it. I can't get my head around it. But I was so incredibly lucky to do that show incredible okay and to do galaxy so and at one point so at one point or you know audience wise i was the biggest commercial radio dj in the country eh i can't even get my head around that it doesn't doesn't even compute but you know fact wise it is true which that's, is a bit crazy that's awesome I, i've got vague vague memories and i might be wrong here but i've, I've got memories of that there was a week where um, so Steve White was doing breakfast at Dern. Mm. I was doing breakfast news at Dern. So me and Steve were, were like the breakfast team. Yeah, you were, yeah. Um, you, I don't think had long since started doing the chart on Sunday. And it's when Sam and Mark from The X Factor got their first number one. Yeah. And I remember me and Steve having a conversation going, it's not a bad week for Barnsley this, is it's it? It's not, is it? And I, remember, like, I remember interviewing Sam and Mark. It, it was just like incredible. You're like, <laughs> this, this little old town, Barnsley, this working class town that everyone's forgotten about since the 80s and... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and and the pits and everything was suddenly like for a week the coolest town in the world. Yeah, I loved that. It was a great time, great time to be alive. It was a it was a good show. Um, obviously now you're on um BBC Radio Leeds. Yeah. And, um, I want to talk about uh, that a bit in 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 a bit. In among all this, um, there's a fairly major event in in your life. Uh, <laughs> something fairly significant happens. I don't when, know what you're talking about. When you're finally able to uh, to embrace the true you as as Stephanie. As I grew some tits in public. Absolutely. <laughs> um, I'm not going to ask too much about it because I kind of feel that um, there's there's an amazing episode of the Naked Podcast that kind of you know that does that yeah, job brilliantly, does actually, which yeah, is which yeah. is superb. But. Thinking about um, that that kind of period, so around the time when you realise that this is something that that you've got to that you've got to do, um, and thinking about your career at that at that mm. point, um, your the the changes that that you know that you're going to be going through, and I just mean physical. Obviously, there's there's going to be changes to your voice, you know, and, and in radio that's such a big tool for you. Mm. Your, your biggest tool is your is your voice. Um, did kind of like work and uh, your radio career was was it in your mindset at that time were you thinking about it was there a point where you thought this might this might be it now for me in, yeah. in radio yeah I was willing to lose it all because it was either tits or death right it was either do it or get off the planet because I'd known from pretty much I guess around the time that I found radio well I knew from at least three or four 
that I wasn't a boy. And I, I knew that. And even at school, at others in North Infants, when they put the boys in one group and the girls in the other, I automatically just got up and joined the girls and kept having to put back with the boys. Because yeah. that's my, I guess my... um it's my natural sense sense of comfortableness, really. Mm-hmm. It's where I, it's where, it's where I, I, I my default. Um, because sometimes biology just it gets things muddled up, doesn't it? Sometimes we don't always come out perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just recently you had the the, the twins at Great Ormond Street, the, the conjoined twins that were separated. That's biology getting a little bit fuddled. It just just occasionally gets things a bit messed up. And my brain formed opposite to what I came out looking like. So growing up, there's this feeling of this is not right. This I just I don't feel what why is that there? Why what's that between my like that's not right? And then all the girls are going through puberty and all that kind of stuff. And this is not happening for me. And it's just, yeah, it, it's a really messed up time. But radio's the only thing that keep, radio's the drug, radio's the thing that made it go away. Um and whenever I was in a radio studio, it wasn't on my mind. But as I got older, it started to creep into my thought process when I was on the air. That's not good. So that means that the sticking plaster, the, the plaster I keep putting over the problem, um, is not sticking anymore. I'd gone to my GP when I was 17 and uh, told him how I felt. And the, his words were, I strongly recommend you don't take this path in life. You'll lose family, friends. You won't have a successful life or, or you won't get a job. Well, hearing that at 17, where you've heard everything that's gone before about me and radio, that's a no-no. And I remember sitting in my Vauxhall Nova outside, crying my eyes out on Rotherham Road. Rotherham Road, in balance for those that know, <laughs> at Rotherham Road um, surgery. And uh, what do you do? You just cracked on. There was no Google. There was only one woman that I knew of who was Caroline Cosse. She was a Bond girl. She was a model and she was outed by the news of the world in the, in the eighties. And she'd got a book out and I used to get that out from the, from Barnsley library. And, um, that was my Google. That was my only bit of information I'd got. Anyone who had changed their gender in the public eye, the media portrayed people in a certain way. in the fact that, there was always a really bad photo from a real dodgy side angle that made them look even more masculine. Mm. You know, it was like sex change Charlie or, you know, gender bending freak or something like that. So you have all that projected on you. Society projects that on you. And just how people from minorities were treated in general just back in the day um, made you feel ashamed so I felt just constantly ashamed that this was there. And I was hoping and praying that it would go away because the more successful I became, the more imprisoned. I was imprisoned within my own success. I was just trapped. All of these things that were happening to me were incredible with my career, but I'm trapped in this body that doesn't match. And it gets to a point where all I'm thinking about is suicide. And I'm travelling home from doing Galaxy and I'm approaching Junction 37 of the M1 in Barnsley. And the the motorway, um, the, the, the northbound carriageway goes down a little bit. 
whereas the southbound is up. And I think that if I turn my steering wheel into the central reservation, I've got more chance of dying because then my car will roll on its roof and it'll collapse and it'll squish me. And this is this this for years is going through my head every single never go when I pass it now it never enters my mind, but it did. So all of these things are happening, and I'm thinking about suicide all the time, and I have to make it stop. I have to make it stop. So it's either die or or do something about it. Well, and and that was the I think that was the catalyst. This is an abridged version. <laughs> what what are those? Um those kind of final weeks, months while you're on Galaxy, um, when you you know you've made that call, you know what what what's coming. What what? How difficult was it to to broadcast and to go on and and to be who you were? Um, that's a really good question. I don't think I've ever been asked that actually. The final few months. Because I'd been, I'd been diagnosed with what they call gender dysphoria about two years before, because I'd I'd gone to my gender, I'd I'd gone to my GP um, in about 2010, 2011. And she was like, oh, it's fine. I know. She says three people in in, in our village have transitioned. I'm like, I've not seen them. (laughs) And, uh, And she was brilliant. She's since retired now. And um, she refers me to the gender identity clinic. I'm seen within the, I think it's the 18 week period. I'm seen within seven weeks. Whereas now if you go to your GP and you go to get referred to your local gender identity clinic, it can be up to three years. Because the system can't cope with the onslaught of people that, you know, are dealing with biology getting a little bit fuddled up. And um, once I was diagnosed, I spent a couple of years trying to fix it trying to kind of just give me a pill that'll make this thing go away can you do brain transplants oh no i can't do those can you can you just 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 give me something or or give me a mechanism to make it stop because i can't lose all this thing i can't lose everything i've got make it go away anyway they can't and they diagnose me with gender dysphoria and it's when you've got a diagnosis then you can start to plan that's when you can start to do things suicide got a little bit more into my head because I thought I can't lose everything. I will lose everything. You look at how the media portrayed people that transitioned. It was just, you you, you would just lose everything. But I figured that I can do this. And if I do lose my career, fuck it. I'll do something else. Because if I can do this and do it and, and make a success of it, I can do, I can do something else. There's something else I've got. I've got skills. If it's public speaking, if it's, if it's just, if it's producing, if it's being a program director, it's being behind the scenes, there, there's, there's, I've got a skill set here. I can use it. If it's coaching, I can do something. And I just was like, so for swearing again, fuck them. It's like anything in life, fuck them. If they don't like it, fuck them. And I just suddenly, it was a sunny day. The windows were open in the house. I was like, buy a new sofa. I'll get a new car. I'll get a new cat. Even the cat. <laughs> when I used to have to wear a wig and stuff, it confused the cat. My old cat, Dave, he used to do one. It, just, it really confused him. He used to go and lay under the bed. He couldn't deal with it. He genuinely used to confuse him. And um, so, yeah, I, uh, I was like, 
if I lose everything, I'll work really hard and get it back. But I have to do this. And um, I told um, the people I work with at, at Capital and stuff, and we came together with a plan that I would come off air and stuff and blah, 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 blah. And it was the right thing because I think to do a breakfast show every single day and transition, you can't do it. You can't. It's just, it takes too much of your brain power up. It's too, and then, <clears throat> excuse me, to do it in the, to do it in the public eye mm-hmm. is just, you can't. I mean, you can, I thought I could. And I think it would have been groundbreaking. I think it would have just created some real amazing radio. But I think, as I mentioned earlier about the dose, it was less about us and more about the audience. And then it starts to become about you. And that's not what the show is about. So it was it was time to stop. So the the weeks that... I used to walk into the building knowing that my time was up knowing that this is coming to an end. And I didn't know when. We'd not made any date or even a decision for me to end at that point. But I used to walk in nipping myself. I used to nip my arm. When I was on the air, I used to try and smell the air. I, I used to take visual snapshots in my mind of things that happened or moments just to cherish them. Because I needed to take something away. And if I could take these, do you know when you take these photographs in your mind? I've got loads of them about my time at Galaxy. Well, Capital at that point. Because I knew that this was ending. And I knew that I had to, I had to collect these snapshots to kind of, they were my lunch in the future. <laughs> and um, and then the last show, which I didn't realise was the last show actually. Um, I'd got a holiday. I'd got a week off the week after and we ended up having a meeting and stuff and we, we decided that actually it's probably best to end now, actually. So I didn't come back. Hindsight, I wish I'd come back. I wish I'd done a few final shows or at least a few more months. But then Chris had gone off radio. Moyles had gone off radio one at that point. He was kicking about. I was kicking about. Um, so we went off to LA and chilled out in LA for for a bit, as you do. And then, uh, and then went back to LA again after after I'd after I'd come out actually and transitioned. Um and it was I think it was in LA, was it might have been when I came back from LA that um a wonderful woman called Megan Carver at Carver PR, who was a producer at Radio One and knew Chris and actually is is she's she's um Chris's PR guru as well. And um she came up with the idea of doing it on the radio. And uh, she approached Five Live and apparently Five Live said, you can have an hour anywhere on the schedule apart from breakfast. So they said, so I said, she says, where do you want to do it? I said, well, I love late night radio as we've talked about. There's a guy called Stephen Nolan who is just incredible. And um, it'd be brilliant on Nolan on a Saturday night. People are less distracted Mm. late at night. And um, I went in Five Live in Salford on the Thursday to pre-record it. We taped 49 minutes and 49 minutes went out. I even do a pickup. I fluff my words and I stop and start again so they can edit it and they left that in. So it's actually as raw as it is. It just the 49 minutes was taped, 49 minutes went out and it went out on the Saturday night. And um, I sat at Chris's with Megan and we listened to it go out. And it was five years ago, a couple of weeks ago, 
And you've got to remember at this point, Kelly Maloney, the boxing promoter, hadn't come out and neither had Caitlyn Jenner. So it's Kelly Maloney, me and Caitlyn Jenner. And at this point, there's a, there's a real tipping point because I think thanks to Caitlyn Jenner, it became, it became a worldwide conversation. People started to talk about this and there's definitely a tipping point. So Megan says to me, it could go one of two ways. And um, I got no hate. Nothing. It was, um, yeah, I literally got, there was nothing. There was, I think people thought it was a stunt to start with. Um, and then it, it, yeah, it just, it exploded. Social media was just incredible. It became one of Five Lives' most downloaded podcasts of all time. I don't think it's that now. I'm, I'm, I'm more sure it's not. Um, they've got in, uh, they've got incredible podcasts. Five Live, Me, You, and the Big C's are, are one that's, you know, just absolutely groundbreaking. Um, but at the time it was, and they reran it. It went out on the Saturday night, and then they reran it again on the Sunday because the the outpour of love was so huge for it. And um, yeah, it changed my life. And then that was it. And um, yeah, never kind of, never looked back. I guess you talk about the voice change and everything. And it's, see, I never thought about that. It never entered my head. Well, it did because I had some voice voice and speech therapy and stuff. I thought I've got to kind of, you know, feminize it the, the best I can. Or And I'd had a... Um, I'd had an issue with my vocal cords anyway because I'd, by bringing Gareth Gates on stage in 2001 in front of 75,000 at Viking FM's Party in the Park thing, I screamed Gareth Gates and I'd been on stage for four hours bringing all the acts on and Gareth was headlining because he'd come second in Pop Idol Mm -hmm. and I screamed Gareth Gates and on the gut, on the gates, I felt something tear and I felt like, I felt like, I hate using the word stabbed because in the current climate and everything, but I felt like I'd been, someone had attacked me in the throat or something. I felt like I'd just excruciating, sharp pain entering my vocal cords and I'd torn a vocal fold and I had scar tissue on it for years and um, and then I had that fixed and that really helped the vocal side of things because they managed to fiddle with it and it's actually just, it just sits in what comes out of it now comes out of it. So I think people, when they listen to radio, they make their minds up on someone's gender immediately with the voice they hear. And because this is my tool, what I use, I I used to, when I, when I had a year off from radio and the amazing Kate Squire at BBC Radio Manchester um, asked me to do a Saturday night show. And to join the BBC, I'd always wanted to work for the BBC. And... Um, I did Saturday nights and it was a 90s show called Nothing But The 90s, which was great because I was playing all those acts that I played at the polls. So I, uh, I start doing this weekly show and I used to drive home over the Woodhead Pass and sometimes I couldn't drive for tears because it was awful. My voice was just, it just wasn't right. Just, I couldn't find my place. I, I was still defaulting into the dose, hirsty person, persona but I didn't want to completely kill that off because that would be killing off who I am because my personality is a bit random and I can't become something I'm not I was just caught between a rock and a hard place I didn't know where to turn 
and it was heartbreaking. But I had to get through this period. I had to find my groove again. I had my turn of phrase that to kind of change a little bit and the way I phrase things. And what I heard in my headphones was different. The way <clears throat> when you speak over the end of a record, your voice cuts through at a certain point and my voice wasn't cutting through and it just was, everything was a muddle. And then I started to kind of make a little bit of headway. And then I had the surgery that fixed the vocal fold. And then after not being able to speak for a month, I got back on air and I noticed there was a difference. It was brighter. That brightness that I wanted, that I could never get because of the injury, the historical injury. It seemed to make things better. And I, I've got, there's a brightness there. It's always going to be husky <clears throat> and a little bit croaky. I mean, I've been on air this morning and it's, what time is it now? It's, it's five to 10 at night and I've been gassing on this thing for ages. Um, so I think it's, it is what it is. And I did an event recently um, and a lady comes up to me afterwards and she says to me, I listen to you every day. I didn't like you to start with. You were a little bit too for me. That's that's the word she used to it. A little bit too, what, edgy? She went, yeah, yeah, yeah. She went, I, I never even knew you, Stara. I never even knew you were anything but you. And I was like, well, if that's not validation, because you, you remember before, you've got a reference point. She ain't got a reference point. She's, she, she's got no idea. She never listened to Galaxy. She just heard me on Radio Leeds and that's it. She has this, here's this woman on the morning talking shite and just generally just having a gas. And, you know, she she got no idea. That's such a, a beautiful kind of moment, isn't it? Yeah, stuff like, it, stuff it really made my night. It made my night that she says, I've got no idea. Because I just expect everyone to be able to tell. Everyone to be able to, everyone knows. And I'm increasingly finding that people don't, which shocks me. And I feel, I don't, I don't know, it's a weird place to be because I just want to be really authentic. But also then, you know, once you tell your story, you have to go through it all. And that's why I don't talk much about it because I just feel like, I also don't want to be one of those people that bangs the drum all the time and constantly goes on about it on social media. You look down my social media, there's nothing about it. That's because I'm not, I'm not embarrassed about it. I've, I'm proud of it. I'm proud of who I am. Um, but also, I think I can change. If there is any perceptions still to change, I can change them by just doing my job and just being a good, living by the values my parents raised me with, which was treat people the way I like to be treated, have respect for others, and just try and be a good broadcaster and try and be a good, you know, try and be all right and not be someone who's using that platform to bang a drum. Yes, we do need drum bangers in this world but I've passed on that baton to the next generation coming through. I'm just getting on with my life. Does that make sense? I feel yeah. I, there's a, there's an element of guilt inside me about it because I feel like I should be on a stage, on a platform saying, you know, that person who is just starting the transition and may not look great and are on that, you know, they're the going through that metamorphosis and, and, you're, and, and you're ridiculing them and spitting at them and threatening to kill them. Even the cat, you know, even the cat's angry about it. It's, it's just, you know, I should should I be using my my platform for that, or should I be using it actually to normalise it? The, I hate that word normalise, but should I be using it for the greater good in just saying, 
And if someone finds out going, oh, oh, you're not scary, are you? No, I'm not. I'm just here just doing my job like you're doing your job. How was your day at work today? Oh, yeah, it was all right. And that's it. Just normalises it. Why do we have to have labels? The whole trans thing. Trans means transitory to move from A to B. I've moved from A to B. My brain formed as female. I just had some bits that to get rid of. Lady Garden's installed. Done. <laughs> um, linking this all kind of back to um, radio, because obviously you find yourself now at, at Radio Leeds. You've been there for a couple of years. Yeah, yeah. 18 months, I think, something like that. Right, okay. Um, the radio world's changed a, a lot in the last few <laughs> Understatement years. Understatement of the year. <laughs> we've, we've talked about stations Gosh. that um, have, yeah, have got, uh, undergone, you know, huge, huge, huge changes. And what, what do you kind of feel when you, when you look at the radio industry now? What do you think about radio in, in, in 2019? I think it's an incredibly um, exciting time. I think we're, we're going through a new age of, of golden, a golden age of radio. I think there's some incredible broadcasters some brilliant speech radio that's coming through the platforms we've got now um, are just giving that talent the chance to shine. I do worry for the next generation coming through. You've just got to be even better than we had to be to, to, to kind of cut through. Um, but also... I don't think there's the amount of people who wanted to do radio that when we were kids because there was no social media. There was no YouTube stars. There was no influencers. Radio was, you know, if you're interested in that kind of thing, radio would have been your default, whereas now it's you'll be a YouTuber, influencer, whatever. Um, so I think actually the pool of people wanting to get in is actually less than it once was when we were younger. But I also think the standard needs to be much higher. I think also we're on the edge of podcasts exploding. So right now in late 2019, Strictly started. Um, Strictly have got a podcast. That's now getting into the mainstream, into your nan's territory. And when you've got that older generation getting podcasts as well, bang, it explodes. And I think the form of linear radio where we are today and podcasts, it's just going through a revolution, isn't it? They're joining together. It's like it's almost like podcast. The word podcast won't exist. It'll just be on-demand audio, like Netflix is. It's just you know the linear format of radio is merging together with on-demand, and it just will all be pulled together in what they call radio. I think that's my prediction. So that's that's the future of radio sorted. What about yeah. what about the future of Stephanie Hurst? Oh gosh, I don't know. I I I really struggle with I've never really said this out loud. I really struggle with can I ever be as good as I once was? And when I talk to people about that, I go, no, no, it's just different now. Yeah, but <clears throat> That doesn't that doesn't work for me. That doesn't work for me. Will I ever I can't so in my head the peak is galaxy and chart or capital and chart or whatever. That can't be the peak. I'm forty four. If is is this this no, this is not so the ambition is still driving me. This cannot be the peak. If this is downhill for me now and I just plateau and I just yeah, that's it. 
for the rest of my, you know, until I retire. I'm never going to retire because I love the world of media and radio and audio. I love it so much. So I can't think that, oh, that was my glory days. No, glory days, they're still to come. I've still got to create them. When Chris Evans left Radio 2, he said something and it, it just, oh, it st- I heard it live. I was in the car and I remember shouting, I went, yes. He says, I'm a mountain climber. I've got mountains to climb. He was on Europe's biggest radio station. Eight, nine million listeners. And he quit to go to a station that had half a million listeners. Because he's a mountain climber. He's got mountains to climb. He's got things to do. And I don't want to steal Chris's words, but I really connected with that. I was like, I've got stuff to do. I don't know what it is yet. I genuinely don't know what it is. But I can't let that. And that's where the, will I ever be as good as I once was? So when I'm talking about that, it's not ability, it's the peak. I can't allow that peak in the noughties and this part of the, the start of this decade, the first four years of this decade to be the glory days. I can't. That is not even an option. So to be back on the air daily at the BBC and to have a daytime show on, on, on the BBC is an honour, it's a privilege. To sit behind a BBC microphone every single day is something that, well, just any live microphone you should never take for granted. It's an honour, it's a privilege. Um, Yeah, I'm very, very, very lucky. I work with some incredibly talented people. Um, The BBC has, has, I wouldn't say issues, but it's a, it's the BBC is a, a very old and lumbering ocean liner. And I think sometimes it's difficult to turn and it is going through a shift. It's going through a shift. You know, Ofcom have recently said about the fact that younger people are not listening. We need to attract younger audiences, but also we can't, we can't just throw away the older audiences. We need to serve them as well. But I think local radio I think it does need to shift. I think its presentation style needs to be slightly... I think you can do local radio, but make it sound national. And what I mean by national, national's got a sheen to it. It's got a sound to it. You listen to Radio 2. It's got a sheen. It's got a polish. And that's not all about budgets. That's about the sound and the craft. And I think sometimes things have been done such a, in such a way for so long. Well, this is how we do it. Well, actually, no, you can make this polish. You can make it shine. It's not about whiz-bangs and cracks and pop holes. It's just giving it a sheen. And I think in this brand-obsessed world that we live in now, I think that's what people are attracted to. And I think for BBC Local Radio or the BBC to survive, I think it needs to reinvent. And I think it's going through it. They're aware of it. It's changing. It's just going to take some time. And it's exciting to be part of that. So I don't know what my future is, but... I'm not letting that peak be the peak. It was really interesting the um, the quote you mentioned there from Chris Evans mm. and climbing mountains. What's the best piece of advice that you've been given in in your time in radio to date? Oh, Less is more. I worked with a man who is Chris Evans's boss, a guy called Mike Cass, who was my boss at Galaxy. Mike is one of the most incredible human beings I've ever met. He has this ability to essentially, in a meeting, tear you a new arsehole. 
but you will also leave that meeting feeling like the greatest broadcaster that ever lived. He has this unique ability. And he used to say, <laughs> tails wagging the dog, less is more. Let me pop that in your mental microwave, see if it goes pink. Um, <laughs> he used to also kick the studio door open some mornings and say, play a fucking record. <laughs> um, and I think be yourself as well. Well, <laughs> I mean, thank you so much for... Um, for your time, for um, those amazing memories, um, and um, yeah, I mean, I'll I'll just finish by saying, let's do this again in another twenty <laughs> years when when you've got when you've got the peak to talk about. Yeah, I've got another mountain to climb. I don't know what it is. I'm forty four, and it's a funny time because you know you you're nearly halfway to fifty, but you're not old, and I I, I feel like there's something else inside me, maybe. It's not radio. I don't know what it is, but there's something I'm here to do. And in 20 years time, it'd be interesting to sit and listen back to this and then know what that other thing was because I loved it. That is the cliffhanger. It's what a way to end it. That is the cliffhanger. <laughs> well, we'll we'll revisit this yeah. in 20 years time. We need to make a we need to make a note. <laughs> Today is Wednesday 30th of October. So, Wednesday 30th of October in 2039. Oh. Yeah, we'll feel old by oh, then. Gosh. I'm pretty I'm pretty certain we'll feel old by then. Gosh. Oh, no, I'll be 64. This is like the equivalent of burying a time capsule. It is, isn't it? I'll be 64. I can't even imagine what 64 is like. Oh. Yeah, I'm not even going to think about that. I've got stuff to do. (laughs) Plenty of time between now and then. Plenty of time between now and then. Stephanie, thank you so much for your time. Uh, And thank you for opening up and being so uh, so honest. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, lovely. Well, an incredible conversation with an incredible person. Thank you to Stephanie. Uh, It reminds me to get that 2039 date in my calendar. I think I might already have something booked in for that one. Uh, We've got more guests lined up on Behind the Mic as we explore the media world in the 21st century. Hit that subscribe button if you want to get the new episodes as they're released. And if you'd like to suggest a guest or to get in touch with me for any reason, head to j.media, that's J-A-E dot media, and I'll speak to you next time.